So this semester has been dedicated to the discipleship of the body. And we've been looking at this through uh, seven building blocks on our theology of the body. In this particular uh, time, we're looking at the sixth of our seven building blocks. We have looked at this through multiple lenses. We looked at the, what it means to have a created body and then what it means to have a related body, how we relate to one another. And finally, in the next two are what I call the sacramental body. I'll say a little more about the previous ones, but just to state the sixth building block is this. And this is one of those sentences where every word in the sentence matters. This is actually the sixth building block. Our bodies are sacraments for the world. Now, our meaning our, not just your, but our bodies and community Our bodies, yes, our physicality of our bodies, are, present tense, sacraments, we'll look at what this word means, uh, holy mysteries, uh, for, that is causative, for the world, the whole world. Our bodies are sacraments for the world. Now, we've already seen in the previous uh, sessions how uh, creation in the Christian worldview is good. Our bodies are good. In fact, they are the, mean, the channel, the means of grace. We have seen how God has instituted uh, our bodies to actually be icons or pointers to the incarnation itself. We are actually living representatives that God entered the world as a person. We also talked about the related body, how we relate to one another in marriage and childbearing, icons of the Christ in the church, icons of the Trinity through family life. And also, last time, the importance of the celibate life. We saw there were two meanings of the body, the spousal meaning of the body and the celibate meaning of the body. And that the celibate meaning of the body is just as important for the witness of the church as the marriage, uh, the spousal meaning, because celibacy actually prefigures the great eschatological banquet when we will all be married to Christ alone And it's just already prefiguring that great truth of what it means to be caught up in the future eschaton. Now, this particular uh, text before us is a great illustration of the sixth building block. And I think it was, I thought it would be helpful. I originally had a theological passage to talk to us about. I thought, you know, it might be better to actually show it to you uh, and let you see how it's lived out in the life of Jesus. When we use the word sacrament, uh, the word sacrament is actually an amazing joint of two words. It's, the, it's a Latin uh, foundation with a Greek ending. It's the Latin word sacer means holy, and the Greek word mysterion meaning mystery. So the word sacrament means holy mystery. Now, what's happened, uh, you now, of course, we're now in the 21st century, so there's a lot of church history that's come before us, and so, especially as Protestants in our tradition, if someone says the word sacrament to you, you immediately go to the place, and, and this is not wrong, but you go to the place of thinking of the two sacraments, baptism and the Holy Eucharist. Nothing wrong with that. I think the, the Protestant problem, if there is to say with that, is the Protestants maybe asked too narrow of a question in the 16th century. They said, what are the sacraments that Christ instituted? And the answer to that, it's like a plain jeopardy. You know, you have to give the right, you know, question. 
If the answer is Eucharist and Lord's Supper, then the question is, what were the ones that Christ himself instituted? But the real deeper point, you might say, I think, which is the larger point that I think Wesley eventually tries to correct is, why did we ask only that question? Could not the sacraments be instituted by the other members of the Trinity, not just Christ, but the Father and the Spirit? And so the, could the Father have been the one that instituted, for example, marriage as a sacramental outward sign of an invisible pointer to a spiritual mystery? Could not the Holy Spirit institute sacraments as well? And, of course, Wesley brought all of this in through what we call the means of grace in terms of things like ordination and praying for the sick and all kinds of things, which are outward signs of spiritual mysteries. And so sacraments actually represent a larger category. And in the original, especially the Augustinian vision of sacraments, was actually much broader than just the two sacraments that we celebrate as a community. So what I want to do is to broaden your view of sacraments and put out the idea that your very body is actually meant to be a sacramental presence in the world. You see, the reason the sacraments of the Eucharist and baptism are called sacraments is because Christ gave his life to us through them, that which they signify. And so we are the body of Christ, and therefore we have a sacramental presence in the world by our virtue of our standing in that sacred space that we call Jesus Christ. So this is why I think it's important to see the connection between the baptism and sacrament and the Eucharist with what it means for us. And this is the second corrective I want to make to our the way we think about the sacraments. And I hate to you know, disagree with ourselves, but it's important, I think, as Protestants to occasionally say, we might have gotten something wrong. I know it's hard, strong stretch, but what we have done, and I don't know, you know, how you're thinking about these things, but it's very traditionally done in the training of young ministers, the gospel, or anyone studying for ministry, is to kind of conceptualize what you embody as a minister as the one who conveys the word and the sacrament. So we use that language to kind of frame our, our, our leadership role in the church, that we're there to, uh, the, the ordained role is that you're the ones that give the word and the sacrament. And there's nothing wrong with that, but the way it's actually conceptualized is the word is our public witness to the world, and the sacrament is what God does to minister his grace to us. Now what I want to say is that's fundamentally flawed since word and sacrament are always both. Obviously, we know that God uses his word not, not just to address the world, but to address us and our own lives. And if you ever preach the gospel, I have this happen all the time where I'm preaching away, and I realize, oh my goodness, I'm preaching to myself. And you find yourself getting convicted of your own sermon. It's a great experience to have. hope you have that. Uh, but secondly, the sacraments are not simply God bridging his presence, his grace into your life, It's transforming you to be his sacramental presence in the world. So it's one thing to say we take his bread, broken bread into us, but another to say the reason we do that is so that we are his broken bread to the world. So this whole sixth building block is actually not simply about an icon of Christ, you know, the mysteries of who Christ is, but the mystery of Christ's mission in the world. This is the missional side to our theology of the body, that our bodies are meant to be on mission with God in the world, and we are his sacraments for the world. Remember, of course, I've told you before about when uh, 
Martin Luther in 1521 at Marburg Castle famously threw his inkwell at the devil. Remember that? What did he say? Yes, he said, I am baptized. That whole, that baptizatusum, that's what you should say if you throw your inkwell at the devil. Because what he was saying was, again, I'm critiquing some of our Protestant evangelical theology. We're not simply baptized by faith, that is to say, our personal faith in Christ. Of course it's that. But we're baptized into a faith. We're baptized into a shared faith that we collectively join together as a community. This is part of the heart of the gospel, that we are brought into a tradition, into a faith, where we represent that in the world as his sacramental presence in the world. So in our text this morning... We have this remarkable moment because I, I, I don't know if you know the Church Fathers' commentary on Mark's Gospel, but the Church Fathers uh, all believed uh, that Mark's Gospel is a representation of Peter's eyewitness of, of the Gospel message. And the reason they believed that this is, of course, Mark was the attendant to, to Peter when Peter was in prison, so we have the opportunity for this to be true. But the other reason this text really helps you to see it is because this text that was read before us is filled with what we call eyewitness markers. These are things that you could not know or you couldn't be just talk. A memory of the event is different from what a person says, no, I was there. They're little tiny details that are generally referred to as eyewitness markers. And this text has three of them in one short passage. The first one is the fact that it mentions this man, and actually the word there is magilelas. Okay, magi meaning, meaning hardly, leleo, to speak. He could hardly speak. Now, some of the older translations say he was mute and all that. That was a very common word. People that were mute couldn't speak. That's not what this text is. This text says that he could hardly speak. Or some would say he would be a deep stutterer. Now, that's something that someone remembered. It wasn't like this person was mute, but I was there. He was able to speak some. He was able to get some words out, but it was very difficult to understand him. Okay? He was a functionally mute, but he wasn't mute. He could hardly speak. The second thing that's an eyewitness marker is what only happens twice in Mark's gospel, and it's very, very rare to have this in, in the synoptics, is that Jesus takes him aside privately. Now, that means this is a private miracle of all the miracles of Christ. Think about it. They're mostly all done publicly, right? It's a public manifestation, a public witness to the world. Here, it happens privately. So he takes them aside. So, yes, Peter, James, and John, or his disciples are probably there, obviously, but they are kind of peeking in. I like the word peek. When, you, when you're in a crowd, you know, you kind of gape at something. But when you're kind of like you don't know that you should be there, you're peeking and you're like, we're getting to see what Jesus is doing. In the next chapter, Jesus takes the, the, uh, the deaf man and he lead, leads him by the hand, the blind man, out of the, out of the village. By the, it's a very powerful scene of Christ leading someone out of the village by himself. That's over in the next chapter, in, uh, in chapter uh, 8, verse uh, 23. 24, he leads him by the hand. So here he is. Uh, he takes him by the side. Uh, side. This is like a private miracle. So it wouldn't be something that would be uh, his eyewitness. And thirdly is what Jesus says when he heals the man. We're told that he cried out with a deep cry, Ephrathah. 
Now, that should really be a signal to you. You want to come back to why they kept it. But we actually have the retain, retaining of the original Aramaic word of Jesus. Now, we all know that Jesus, like in the normal course of ministry, he spoke Aramaic. And yet it comes to us in our New Testament as Koine Greek. So we're actually receiving a translation of the words of Jesus, even in our primary document, which is, by the way, unique to Christianity. But occasionally the New Testament refrains from doing that. It will not do it. There's a couple of really important moments. I mean, obviously the, the little girl, Talithakom, get up, arise. There's this text, Ephratah. And, of course, the most important one, the most glorious one, is at the cross where they cannot bear to give that moment to us in translation. There's no way. You've got to hear what Jesus said at that moment. Eli, Eli, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That comes to us. That's what you would have heard if you had been at the foot of the cross. It's very powerful. And yet it comes here. So we want to ask later, why here? So let's go back and let's go through this more carefully. They bring to a man, Jesus a man who is deaf and could hardly talk. He's a deep stammerer. And they begged him to place his hand on the man. Jesus then takes him by the hand, takes him off a side, and he does something quite remarkable. Jesus takes his fingers and he sticks his fingers into the man's ears. And he takes some spittle from his mouth and he touches the man's tongue with his spit. Now, there's nothing quite like this. And the question is, why did Jesus stick his fingers into this man's ears? We're about to go into Thanksgiving break. This is your final exam question. <laughs> if you get this right, all will be well. I seriously believe this. This is one of the most important questions you'll be asked as a theological student. Why did Jesus stick his fingers in the man's ears? Now, there's, of course, there's, there's functional considerations. The man is deaf. Um, it, uh, the man was, couldn't hear Jesus speak to him, so it certainly was reassuring to hear all something is happening here. He couldn't have heard Jesus say the word. I, I get that. There's certainly, we, don't, we all realize that Jesus didn't functionally need to do that. Like, you know, Jesus could have just spoken the word. Why did Jesus, is there a deeper theological reason, why did Jesus stick his fingers into the man's ears? It's a really important question. Because there's occasional, there's moments in the New Testament where something small happens, which gives you a little crease, a little crack into something really big. Because this question is actually, if you think about it, it this question leads to other questions. It leads to the question, well, why did Jesus talk to the woman at the well? Why did Jesus touch the leper? You see, it's really about the biggest question of all. Why did Jesus come to earth? You see, this, this question, why did Jesus stick his fingers in a man's ears, is a fundamental question about the incarnation and the embodiment of God in Jesus Christ in human pain. 
That's the whole thing about this because God is walking in the midst of human pain. I can promise you Allah of Islamic proclamation cannot stick his fingers into a man's ears. It's blasphemy to the Muslims. Allah, and by their own teaching, Allah must be enthroned. To, for Allah to leave his throne is to sacrifice his glory and his sovereignty. And for God, in Christ's proclamation, to come down off his throne and to step into human history, we're learning something about the nature of God, aren't we? Oh, that embodiment, the whole gospel is in seed form in the very act of Jesus sticking his fingers into a man's ears. You know, Anselm wrote his book, Curdeus Homo, Why Did God Become a Man? That's what this is getting us at. Why did God do this? What's the purpose of this? Now, uh, when I was um, thinking about this, I thought, you know, someday archaeologists are going to be digging down and they're going to uncover with their little, you know, little spade, they'll finally hit the late 20th, early 21st century. They'll hit it. They'll hit our level. And they're going to, you know, start scraping away the dust and they're going to find what is called artifacts. Now, I don't know what artifact will be the most likely to be found to identify, yep, this is it, 21st century, we hit it. But I think I have it in my pocket. You know, I I realized that Nicole was going to be doing the introduction today, and I said, you know, Nicole always brings a prop, right? It's part of the proper sermonizing, right, Nicole? So I'm brought a prop today. This, in my my pocket, is the artifact of the late 20th, early 20th century. A remote control. <laughs> These have been produced by the gajillion and uh, by, by your generation and mine, and they're everywhere. They're everywhere. There's no question when you hit this, you know you've gotten to our people, our group. They're all over the world. I, I must admit, I don't understand them. I have a lot of them at home. But <laughs> Julie is here. And Julie, yeah, Julie's here. Okay, Julie, tell, tell the congregation. How many remotes does it take for us just to turn our TV on? <laughs> I don't understand it. I don't know why. We have like a box that, like, because we don't watch TV at all during the day, it kind of goes dormant. We have to turn on some box that has to be brought to life. And then you have to turn on the television, but then it requires something else that has to be done over here. It, it's very complicated. Remotes. Okay, what is a remote? A remote like any artifact, says a lot about our culture. It says we, we, don't, we like to do things remotely. So we uh, think about it. Think about all the Zoom technology we're now doing. Classes are held remotely. We, we turn on air conditioning through, through remotes. We turn on music through remotes. Uh, I have a garage door opener through remote. And, of course, TVs. All those things happen through remotes. But it does say something about our culture, doesn't it, that we have a love of the remote and part of what we want to convey in the gospel is that while there's nothing wrong with any of those devices, we all use them, we're all going to die with them, I'm sure. But the point is, is there some part of you that says part of the nature of the gospel is the embrace? You know, in a sense, it's like the, you know, um, do we get up off our sofa to get engaged in the world, right? There's a, something about that, let me just stay in my sofa, I was, 
I, I have broken a few remotes over the years, and I'll tell you one remote I broke. I was actually watching a, a, like a religious channel at one point, and I had a remote moat next to me, and on the TV, a commercial came up, and it showed a man named John who was waxing his car in Southern California. And the voiceover said, as you can see the palm trees, it was a classic, you know, Southern California scene. And he's there, you know, back in his car, beautiful sports car. And the voiceover said this, John is waxing his car in Southern California. It's pretty obvious. It says, but he is also preaching the gospel in India. I immediately looked up, wow, how is that possible? This is what I've been, this is, this is the commercial I've been waiting for my whole life. <laughs> what is the answer for this? And they said, because John was giving $25 a month to support an evangelist who was in India, preaching the gospel in India, and therefore John was able to simultaneously wash, wax his car into the California and preach the gospel in India. Now let me say, in case anybody's nervous, I am not at all worried about or demean the fact that John wrote his check for $25 to support something going on anywhere in the world. Thank God that he's doing that. But the point is, do you know what John is doing? John is waxing his car. Full stop. John is not preaching the gospel in India. Now, there are many ways he may be enabling others to do that, but that's very, very different. You cannot write a check for the Great Commission. Even if God calls you to write one, that's not how it's done. Somebody has to embody it. It has to be embodied by the people of God. You can't simply write checks to get things done. That's what the world does. We must be embodied in the mission of God. So I did. When I heard that, I threw the remote at the television and it broke. <laughs> and I had to buy three to replace it because it wasn't the original. I talked about this text at one point in a sermon in a church in Massachusetts, and I made the comment, kind of in passing, uh, and this was a church that had their service like on radio and all that, so I said in passing that I have seen so much Christian art you know, over the years. I've seen art of almost every possible kind of ministry of Jesus, et cetera, and, I, and my wife and I love Christian art. We go to the museums and all that. All over the world we've done that. But I've never, I've seen Jesus walk on the water, I've seen Jesus breaking the bread for the, the Eucharist, I've seen Jesus on the road to Emmaus. You name it, I've seen it in art. But I've never, ever seen an art of Jesus sticking his fingers into a man's ears. This text has not been brought to art properly. Somebody that come, I said, yeah, maybe it's out there, I just never have seen it. So several months goes by, and to my amazement one day, I got in the mail at the church where I served. I got this long tube, and I opened it up, pulled it out, and unfurled it. And it was an amazing charcoal, charcoal drawing of G this very scene of Jesus sticking his fingers in the man's ears. And the letter that came with it was from a man who amazingly was incarcerated in a, a, a top security prison in Connecticut. So here's a man who, by definition, could have no interaction. He, he, was, he was inhibited. He was behind bars, literally. 
and he had met the Lord in prison. And he had been gloriously transformed. And he was trying to grow in his faith and listen to radio, et cetera. And he heard this message and he had the gift. He had an amazing gift of charcoal drawings. And he made this charcoal drawing as a gift to me. And I thought, wasn't it wonderful that it came from him, especially somebody who was, had lost that connectedness, that ability to, to actually connect with the world the way that God had called him to do it, all of us to do it through, through the gospel. I really want to encourage you to think about your life and your, body, your embodiment as a broken sacrament. You are the broken body of Christ in the world. You are the living, uh, the wine of, of life, the, the cup of life for the world where Christ works in us and through us. That's why Christ came. That's why he sent us into the world. I want to also say as president that uh, one of the greatest, I would say the singular greatest inspiration of my job, my life, is our alumni, and you are all on your way to becoming those. I had the privilege of traveling all over the world meeting our alumni. I originally set a goal when I first arrived here. I thought, could it? I possibly physically meet, now I'm not talking about through any other technology, physically meet 10% of our entire alumni force. It would that even be possible. So I made that my first goal. And I, I traveled all over this country. I've been in hundreds of churches and ministries that, that you, your, your future comrades, will, are ministering and working in. And I, met our, I talked to our alumni. I met our alumni. And it is the greatest greatest testimony that you get this point because that's what you're doing that's what you will be doing that is what we are doing all over the world I've seen it all over the world people that are engaged fully and wholly and wholeheartedly in the work of Christ and showing that to the world I could give testimonies all day long and I by the way I've done this I made two global trips to every continent to all some alumni around the world. I'm doing another one next year if COVID allows me. But let me tell you one small story, a recent story of one of our graduates. He graduated years ago. He's a very, very old, one of our older, very old graduates. If you count, you know, in your 80s, that's getting up there. And he had, he was a trucker. He drove those like, you know, 18 wheelers or whatever. And he got gloriously converted. And he comes to Asbury and he gets trained for ministry. And he goes out and he spends his life in wonderful, you know, again, he was from Texas. And he spends his life in ministry in small churches in Texas, eventually became a chaplain at the hospital in Temple, Texas. Now, Temple, Texas, I don't know, it's not a big town. It's halfway between Austin and Waco, about 150 miles from Houston if you don't know your Texas geography, which is not hard to not know since it's like a whole country in itself. But he's from Temple, Texas. And this man, one of our graduates, he's had some challenges, health challenges, as he got older and he got in retirement years. But, you know, I said he kept on. He was a chaplain doing his work in retirement, uh, never stopped. And he's had two open-heart surgeries. And he has two 
pig valves in his heart. And he tells me, he said, I have a zipper to prove it. Like, you know, he has one of these like, long cuts from his body where he had open heart surgery twice. He, his wife has breathing, I mean, she literally is on like oxygen during the day because she can't, she has lung problems, lung uh, respiratory issues. So if there's anybody that could be given like the, I call the COVID-19 exemption card, you know, you have the right to stay inside and never, ever leave your house. It would be, it would be uh, Al, Alan Newby. But he can't do it. He can't do it because he is so convinced I mean, he, doesn't, he wouldn't even tell you, he wouldn't even know, he wouldn't understand the question. He just can't help it. This guy is a one-force mission into the world, always has been. He's a mission force in the world. He cannot not share the good news. So here he is with a massive heart condition, two pig valves in his heart, a zipper down the front, a wife that is sick, frail. And he, what does he do? He puts... Now, COVID-19 comes, he puts on his N95 mask. He buys several bottles of that stuff that you squirt on your hands, and he goes back out into the world. And every day, he goes and he buys boxes and boxes of donuts. If you go to Temple, Texas, he's known as the donut man. And I, I know, I, I say this because it's like, I want you to come back to Jesus. Why did Jesus stick his fingers in the man's ears? I want to say, why does Alan Newby give out donuts? I really want to end with something very practical. Because what he does is, he started going to the hospitals. And he wanted all the healthcare workers to be blessed by God. So he would get the donuts, he'd open up, they would get the donuts out. And he passed these donuts out to all the healthcare workers and the surgeons, the doctors, the nurses, everyone to say thank you for their work. And he, he particularly has identified all the people who can't be like all the essential services people, right? The people that can't stay at home. Doctors, nurses, people in transportation, all of that. Those are the people. He has 35 locations he goes to. Every day he goes to the hospitals and every day, twice a day, he goes to the trains the Amtrak train. Now, the Amtrak train that goes to Los Angeles from Chicago to Los Angeles passes through Temple, Texas. And twice a day, at, at 11.30 and at 4.45, it pulls into Temple, Texas. And when the Amtrak train pulls into Temple, Texas, there's an 80-year-old man standing there on the platform twice every day with boxes of donuts. And he goes on the train and he gives the donuts to all the people that are there that are riding the train, the conductors, the people, the personnel on the train, every single day. Occasionally, because he has an illness, you know, he has to miss, and they'll say to themselves, where's the donut man? And he says, when he gives the donut, Jesus loves you, and so do I. That's the whole point. The point is is that the reason Jesus stuck his fingers into the man's ears, he was telling us something about the nature of the incarnation and what it means for us to be incarnate in the world. He is the incarnation. We get that. No one can reproduce that. But we are the reflections of that in the world, and we give ourselves to the world, and nothing can stop us. COVID-19, you know, there may be 20 protocols. Okay, we'll buy by all of them. It doesn't matter. 
you can live by the code of calls, but you still find a way to do mission. Don't think because you're graduating this year, like all is lost. No, all is not lost. You just think differently. You find a way to do mission. If you have any question, like how can I figure this out? How can I figure out ministry in a COVID-19 world? Just ask Al Newby. He'll tell you. Amen.